Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Happy post-July 4th, podcast listeners. Super excited today to have a good friend on the show. We're bringing on a partner of one of our very first guests. If you remember, one of the first episodes was Wes Gray. We're bringing on uh, his partner at Alpha Architect, the CFO, CIO of Alpha Architect, Jack Vogel. Welcome to the show. Hey, man. Uh, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble spitting my words out after this long five-day weekend, but the last time I saw Jack was in a karaoke bar down in Dana Point and Jack, I don't th- I don't think you got up on stage did you No I was uh probably for everyone's benefit just uh staying in the crowd enjoying everyone else's uh singing experience Well I wasn't planning on getting on the stage but Tom Lydon our good friend from ETF Trends was doing a brutally bad just massacring Baby got back by Sir Mix-a-Lot, so I had to go steal the mic and take over for him. But he had a beautiful voice and did many other great songs and was a gracious host, so we had a lot of fun. And we were just down at the Ritholtz IMN evidence-based conference where we were both speaking and where Meb and Jeff were tried. They tried to not let us into the, the, the happy hour golf party, but eventually did. Anyway, let's, let's get, let's get cranking today. So, Jack, why don't you give us a little bit of origin story? Um, I've known you for years now, but but give the listeners a little. What, what was the what was the path progression that uh, that eventually spat you out at, at Alpha Architects? Do you always want to grow up to be a, a quant finance researcher? Uh, I don't know if that was necessarily the case. So, but but it evolved, and I, I love what I do. So, um, good question. Basically, I um, graduated. Uh, undergrad as a math education major, so I'm technically certified in PA as a high school math teacher, and I was in a PhD in math program, and during my second year, I kind of realized I did not want to do perpetual research on matrices and linear algebra in math, nor did I really want to go work for you know the NSA or something like that, so I became interested in finance, and I switched to the PhD in finance program at Drexel, and that's kind of where I met Wes. So Wes had graduated from Chicago and was placed and hired as a professor at Drexel, and in PhD programs in general, you uh, end up working kind of closely uh, with a professor, and I just got assigned to Wes and kind of like the uh, business side as well as the research side of finance as opposed to doing like academic, pure academic research. And that's how I've kind of got into working with Wes at Alpha Architect. And Meb, I know I've been working with you, I think it was back in, uh, what was it, 2011 or whatever, whenever you did your shareholder yield uh, book, I I was kind of helping Wes out with, with with you and uh, figuring out something. Intimately involved. 
Well, I mean, you know, had had you never met Wes, you would probably still have an ACL. I mean, I remember you just uh, wet Wes's goofy basketball playing. I think caused you to caused you to blow out your knee, but you're fully recovered at this point, or close, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty close. Uh, yeah, basketball in the driveway uh, in at someone's house, Wes's house, um, can be very dangerous to your ACLs. That is a true statement. But yeah, I'm pretty much. Wes's house, also known as Alpha Architects Global Headquarters. Um, I also don't have an ACL on one of my knees from playing hoops, so I think I retired after doing that. Anyway, let's get let's get back to the topic on hand. So Jack's written like a dozen white papers. You can find them on SSRN with all sorts of names like using maximum drawdowns to capture tail risk. Does complexity imply value? Which is one of my favorite papers, by the way. We're not going to talk about today, but it's a. Uh, it looks at all the. AAII, American Association of Individual Investor Value Strategies, all the way back to 1963. That is probably, that may be my favorite paper to you all, but it's one of the least read. So we'll, we'll put show notes up for all those. You've done three books, like a gazillion white papers, but I figured we'd kind of go through the flow a little bit and see how long, first of all, we can go without saying the term smart beta. I, f- I feel like the first person to say it has to owe happy hour in this podcast. But um, let's talk about factors. So it's 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 an area you guys work a ton on. You've written two books, co-authored books with Wes on this topic, one called Quantitative Value, one called Quantitative Momentum. So I want to talk about each. And in particular, you've actually distilled them into some really beautiful white papers. Let's start with value. And you guys got a, a nice white paper called Our Quantitative Value Philosophy. You want, you want to give us a quick overview? Actually, I, w- I wanted to read a quote that will lead in, and then I'll just let you run from there. It says, Quantitative is often considered to be an opaque mathematical black art, only practiced by ivory tower academics and practitioners with their heads in the clouds. Nothing could be further from the truth. Quantitative or systematic processes are merely tools that value investors can use to minimize their unavoidable instincts. Quantitative tools serve two purposes. Pre- protect us from our own behavioral errors, and two to exploit the behavioral errors of others. So why don't, why don't you talk to us a little bit about the, the value philosophy in general, and we can get into the, the nitty-gritty of the steps you guys take to, to forming a portfolio. Sure. Yeah, so uh, I like the quote you you started with there. You know, And basically, the whole idea and part of that quote is to understand that you know, quantitative can have weird uh, can cause weird reactions for people um, some people think oh you're a quant you're just you know looking to optimize data and run regressions to figure out what was the best way in the past to invest and that may not necessarily be true in the future um, and, and the whole idea behind I guess all our processes is we just use tools uh, quantitative ie a computer to do a lot of the heavy lifting that a uh, security analyst, especially for value, like a fundamental security analyst would end up doing themselves. Um, we just use the, the uh, computer to kind of sort through and sift through all the data because computers are just a lot quicker than humans are. And then as far as value goes, uh, I'll start with that before we get into details. You know, value investing has been around forever. Um, and just to be clear, Wes wrote uh, Quant Value with Toby. Um, I helped do all the data on there, though, so I kind of know implicitly uh, all the nuances of that process. And But, but on value investing, what is it essentially – you know, just buying cheap stuff and the, the whole outline uh, and the process of the quant va- value philosophy is basically to try to say what's what would be, you know, the best way to use a computer, in our opinion, it, to be a value investor. 
So the, you list five steps in the paper, and we could talk about each of them um, at length, or I'll let you talk about them. But uh, th- there are, you start with the universe, you then move to forensic accounting screens, valuation screens, quality screens, and then investing with conviction. So why don't you take us a little bit through that process, starting at to how you really kind of construct a portfolio based on the, the universe of, of uh, stocks. Sure. Yeah. So the, the first, the first step is, you know, constructing the universe, right? And the whole idea there is you want to make sure when you're building portfolios, especially that have any types of scale that you can, that one can actually invest in them. Right. So, you know, uh, something in, in the academic databases like FAMA has a good paper, uh, called dissecting anomalies where he highlights that within the databases, you know, 60% of the firms in there are what would be considered micro cap stocks. And they only account for 2% of the market value. Uh, of, of the U.S. investable universe. So, you know, you want to, like, kick them out. So I guess that's the first step is kind of look at mid-large cap stocks that are investable. Um, and then the second step is forensic accounting. And for value investing, as many people know, one of the issues is you don't want to be be caught catching the falling knife, right? You don't want to catch stocks that may be doing something that may be cheap for a reason. And so this is one way at the outset where we use a couple of uh, forensic accounting screens such as high accrual firms, firms with higher probability of financial distress, um, and high probability of bankruptcy. And we use them to just eliminate, you know, around 5 to 10% of the universe. Um, and to be clear, that step... What that will do is you're going to have a ton of false positives where you kick out a firm and they, you know, they don't go bankrupt or they don't have financial distress. But on average, if you look and just say, hey, we're going to take the, the universe of 1,000 stocks, kick out 5 or 10%, in the past, that was actually like a good bet. Um, that was just, uh, you know, it add, added some value, had, you know, slightly better uh, summary stats. I think it has a derivative benefit, which is if you're like kind of, you're kind of like skimming the, the scum off the top of a pond. And if it keeps you from owning some really terrible name that goes bankrupt into zero, that regardless of whether it's a compounded return portfolio to statistic benefit, there's the benefit of not owning that turd, right? Like you, you feel better about not owning some bankrupt stock and question your process. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's just one way, especially, especially when you're doing it. Um, and I think this goes back to kind of that quote you were talking about, like the quantitative. And we always get people that ask, Hey, well, what about a quantum mental approach when you kind of look at the stock names and add that human element that you're going to say, hey, we're going to screen out this name or that name. Um, I think it kind of maybe just makes you sleep better at night, as you kind of mentioned, because if if you're not going to be screening the names at the end uh, from a human aspect, you know, having a screen like that can be beneficial. All right. So uh, you get rid of the junk. And then next, uh, how, how do you guys approach value? A lot of different investors use different value factors or have a different approach to value what's 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 y'all's 
Yeah, so we're, we're kind of big fans of enterprise multiples, which is, you know, you can measure it by EBIT or EBITDA over total enterprise value. Explain. Yeah, and so basically it's, you know, taking earnings and what total enterprise value is, uh, is it's basically if one had to buy the firm, how much would it cost to buy the entire firm? So you, you basically add up market capitalization plus all the debt plus, you know, maybe minority interest or preferred stock. So anything you would need to do, you need to buy out all the equity holders and all the debt holders, and then you subtract off cash, right? So if you look at Apple, uh, you know, Apple clearly has got around like $200 billion, or I forget what the number is now, but they have a ton of cash, so you get to subtract that off of the total enterprise value uh, for Apple. And so, so that's one way to measure it. And how do we settle on such a measure. Well, Wes and I actually have a paper. It's in the Journal of Portfolio Management. And we wrote this back in 2011 or 2012. I forget now. Um, And we basically said, hey, we're just going to do a performance horse race across different different value multiples. So we looked at book to market, PE ratios, free cash flow to total enterprise value, enterprise multiples, uh, and we even looked at analysts, forward analyst uh, estimates. And we said, hey, we're we're just going to look at the spread between value and growth. Uh, And what we found was enterprise multiples in the past did the best at predicting the the so-called value premium in um, in. U.S. stocks, um, and and also in international stocks, there's another paper, uh, and there's other academic papers have found that this is a a decent value measure. Um, And so we looked at that and said, hey, we like enterprise multiples. We kind of like it because another just theory as to why it may work well is, you know, a lot of enterprise multiples is how some private equity investors would value a firm, right? They'd say, okay, it's earning this much. To buy the whole companies, you got to look at the total enterprise value. That's the the multiple that we chose. You could use, you know, a couple different multiples if you wanted to, but we just like to keep it simple. So we basically take, like, getting back to our screen. If we start with a thousand stocks, step two we kick out ten percent for easy math, so you're down to nine hundred. And then in step three, which really is the most important step. We kick out, we go directly to the top 10% cheapest firms, so you're down to 90 stocks. Okay, and then the final, I think it's the final step, which is quality. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, so so quality can mean a lot of things, could be measured a million ways. Uh, the way we think of quality is we do it, we look at it through like the lens, we kind of think of it as like a table, right? So for a table to stand up, you kind of need to have a couple legs. So two of the legs we think of are like long-term for our U.S. screen. We look at long-term measures of quality. And what we look at is free cash flow, over assets over you know an eight year period. Uh, another measure is we look at a combination uh, and we take the percentile ranks on both margin growth and margin stability. So clearly you may not be able to like great firms might not be able to have high margin growth, but they may have super stable margins, right? So Procter and Gamble's fifty or fifty-five percent margin um, stability, uh, we kind of make like a sharp ratio out of like you know your your margin divided by the standard deviation of your margins over eight years. 
And we also look at other measures such as like return of return on capital and return on assets over eight years. So 50% of our quality score is like a long-term quality score. And then the other, you know, two legs of our table are the, what we call the, it's like a pre-flight checklist where we look at, we look at the current financial strength of the firm. And what that is, is it's basically like 10 year over year measures just to make sure that the firm that we're buying uh, isn't going to go bankrupt next year uh, or, or, or isn't in finan- current financial uh, distress. It's doing pretty well from a year over year basis. And so you come down to a pretty concentrated list. What is it down to a final 50 names? Yeah. So for the value portfolios, we go down to the top 40, 45 names around there. I, I, I tossed uh, that you were coming on the podcast to Twitter. And one of the questions was, you know, what, what does Jack and the crew estimate as kind of capacity? You mentioned that you're focusing mainly on large cap stocks. When, when, you know, Fun crushes it. You guys do amazing. Where, where, where do you see start to like you start to um, turn the dials a little bit when uh, you get to a certain size? Is it like five billion, ten billion? What, where, where do you think the? If you have any thoughts on that in general? Yeah. So what I uh, that's a good that's a great question. Uh, I saw that question on Twitter there, and, and something Wes and I have thought about. So probably for value uh, the way it's currently constructed where it's like 40 45 stocks equal weighted and they're mid to large cap you can probably go up to around 1 billion without doing any tweaks right around that time and, and again this is assuming you're running the portfolio at the same time right so right. you know if you're rebalancing it at different times, you may be able to add capacity. But let's assume you, you want to run it as one bucket, and on you know one day you want to rebalance the whole thing. So, but but then after that, you know you can still make minor tweaks uh, and probably get a lot more capacity in the fund. But you definitely would have to ch- probably change uh, that end portfolio construction. Where in step five right now, it's like, hey, we go to forty to forty-five names and equal weight. You know, maybe maybe it's you add a couple more names, or you do some sort of uh, screen where maybe larger caps get a slightly higher weight. But that's a great question, right? It, and, and there's a lot of things you can do. I mean, Jack mentions rolling rebalances, which is certainly one, uh, as well as many others. Uh, it'll be a good problem to have when you guys when you guys hit that five ten billion capacity. Uh, happy hour on you. Well, let's let's flip to a totally different for many people. A lot of podcast listeners will hear this, and you know, so many people are are you know self-described value guys or buy and hold guys or whatever it may be, whatever your investment approach, dividend income guys. You know, a total, almost a totally opposite left brain, right brain sort of approach is, is momentum investing. So you had a cool quote at the beginning of this one too. So I'm gonna read that. It said, "Why might momentum be an interesting stock selection tool?" It says, first, Eugene Fama, the 2014 co-recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economics and father of the efficient market hypothesis, has summarized the academic research on momentum as follows. Quote, the premium anomaly is momentum, end quote. When the father of efficient markets suggests momentum is a leading anomaly, we take note. So talk to us a little bit about momentum, because you guys have written what I would consider to be the most comprehensive, well-researched summary of the momentum literature 
Um, so, so give us, give us a little overview and, and, uh, then we'll break it out into the, the similar five steps. Yeah. So, yeah. So Wes and I, uh, I guess a year and a half ago wrote quantitative momentum, which was just a compilation of a lot of posts and papers and research that we had kind of gone through over the years. Um, but really the goal of that book was to kind of outline for investors, why momentum investing and, and momentum investing may be beneficial to to your portfolio, and you know this comes from the lens of like Wes and myself. We both kind of grew up as like value investing, you know, disciples, right? You know, you read Intelligent Investor, you see Warren Buffett, you're like, oh, I'm going to be a value investor, and then what, what you come to realize is that momentum investing. Uh, can be beneficial to your portfolio. And as I mentioned earlier, it's really beneficial for value investors. So we wanted to outline in that book, kind of uh, try to, the first couple chapters, we really try to highlight how it's beneficial and also how it is definitely different than growth investing. Um, because a lot of times what happens is for value investors, they just know buy value, don't buy growth, right? Like that's kind of the... Uh, the gospel. Um, and it's important, I think, to differentiate the two and highlight, hey, you know, momentum stocks are not necessarily growth stocks. And so that's kind of what we did. And explain what you mean by it. So for listeners, like growth stock, when you're talking about growth, like explain the difference just real quick, and then we'll, we'll keep drilling down on momentum. Yeah. So so mo- momentum, in the way we measure it, um, is we used what's simple called price momentum i.e. you look at the total return of a stock over the past year. So if you had a thousand stocks, you know, you'll you'd buy the top decile or twenty percent, right? Whereas a growth portfolio is if you had a thousand stocks, you would rank all the firms on let's say PE ratios, and a growth investor would be would buy those with the highest PE ratio. And a value investor would buy those with the lowest PE ratio. So, you know, the overlap historically, I think, was like in our book was like 27% around there of the top decile of growth stocks and the top decile of momentum stocks. So, they're definitely not the same thing in our, uh, according to the data. Okay. So, back to the, the momentum screen. So, you do the first step, which is similar to uh, the value. So, you're only looking at mid, large cap exchange traded stocks. Second, you just mentioned the momentum screen, which is the past 12 months, ignoring the first the first month. And this is where you kind of start to depart a little bit from what a lot of just very basic traditional momentum is. You add a little quality and then seasonality. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, and real quick, just to highlight in step two, momentum is actually a weird thing where if you look at short like I month over month and long, like three to five years, stock returns historically actually reverse. So in step two, you want to look at like what's called intermediate term momentum, which is anywhere from like, you know, six to 15 months. But then, uh, as you mentioned, step three. So if we start with a thousand stocks in step one, step two, we go down to the top hundred stocks based on their past one year return, excluding last month. And then, 
step three, you're right. We we definitely do something different, where and we call it the quality of momentum, not necessarily quality. Um, and, and what we're looking for here is the question is, and, and I like to give this example when people ask, what is this step supposed to do? So um, imagine you have two high momentum stocks that are both up a hundred percent. So uh, stock A or stock A, we'll call you know exciting biotech, which was just kind of bobbing around zero percent, you know, jumping all over the place, and then you know three months ago an FDA approval came out and it was up a hundred percent, right? And then it was zero percent thereafter. So stock A is up a hundred percent because it had a one day jump due to an FDA approval. Stock B, I'm going to call boring big box, right? And boring big box has just returned 50 basis points for the past, you know, 250 days, right? Or let's say 200 days. So, so stock B, boring, boring big box, is also up 100%. A question in that one could ask is, well, you know, in this example, which type of momentum stock would you want to own? And, and there's a cool paper that we kind of leverage. The title of the paper is called Frog in the Pan, right? Continuous Information and Momentum. And, and what it asks is essentially, um, you know, which type of stocks would you want to own? And what they find is you want to own those stocks that people tend to overlook, um, those that have more continuous good information. So in, in my simple example, it would be the, the boring big box store and it, the exciting biotech firm, you would actually want to exclude them. And part of that reason, you know, we talk about a lot of people, momentum is, is because of that predictable underreaction to fundamentals. And so a lot of the steady eddy, you know, people may be underreacting to that change, whereas, um, uh, and, and vice versa in the opposite. Okay. Um, next, you mentioned seasonality. What, what, what does that mean? Yeah. So seasonality is just uh, the question of, you know, when does one rebalance the portfolio? Um, and actually, it, this is a slightly interesting story. So when I was a PhD student, Wes and I were talking and kind of had an idea to examine the seasonality momentum because we kind of just had this thought we're like hey you know it could be the case that in quarter ending months momentum may do really well due to people and you know such as mutual funds and institutions where they have to disclose their holdings every quarter right um, and so by by construction if you want to make your portfolio look good on paper right where you only have to disclose once a quarter what would you do? The natural idea would be you would have to buy the high momentum stocks in the quarter ending month, and you'd have to sell or get rid of all your crappy losing stocks, i.e. low momentum, right? And so we had this idea, found the results, which is kind of what we thought, which is that momentum premium looks great and works kind of the best in quarter ending months. Um, and, you know, as a PhD student, you just want to get papers published so you can graduate and you know found looked at all the big journals and found found no one had published thought we were great and then you know we find out it was in you know uh, a uh, practitioner journal someone had already found this result you know in 2008 so uh, good that someone else had verified our result but essentially what this step does is we say hey since the momentum premium 
seems to do really well in quarter ending months. What we do is we try to rebalance our portfolio right before those quarter ending months occur. So, you know, you would want to rebalance at the the beginning, uh, sorry, the end of November or the beginning of December, in the anticipation of people potentially buying up the high momentum names as the month went on so that they have them in their portfolio uh, to show shareholders at the end of the quarter. I'm looking forward to the days when we start front-running you guys and then everybody starts front-running us and we'll have to start rebalancing our end-of-year portfolio at the end of September. So we'll be a whole quarter ahead. <laughs> okay, so you end up you end up with the same thing with the portfolio, I think also 50 names. Is that about right? Yeah, around 50, 40, 50 yep. names. So we take the 50 okay. names uh, from... From, we go from 1,000 to 100 to 50. And then step th- four is just when do we rebalance. That's correct. So I, I think this is probably a good little segue. You know, th- th- we talk a lot on this podcast and on the blog about, you know, indexing and when you start to move away from, from the market cap index. And we often say, look, if you're going to be different, be different. And so you guys have developed some pretty kick-ass tools um, you know, one, one feature on your website we've talked about before is your visual active share tool. So for any of our listeners who, who probably missed our discussions on this, um, maybe you could start by giving us a quick synopsis of, of what that is, uh, the general, you know, thought process behind it. And then of course, what, what y'all's tool, uh, actually does. Yeah. So what, well, let me give you the genesis and kind of what, how and why we wanted to build this tool, right? So, as you mentioned, you know, if you're if you're going to do build a different portfolio, right? There's two ways to go about it. One way is you just kind of closet index and you know you build something, call it value, call it momentum, but it's really just the index. Uh, the other way is you you build a truly unique portfolio. And so the question is. For a lot of people, investors and financial advisors in in the marketplace, it's really hard to get through what I call like the cloud of marketing, i.e. you don't really know what you're buying because you can kind of easily be, uh, you know, duped by, by good marketing, right? And so one way to measure it, there's a... Professor Martin Kremers has a couple of papers, and him and the AQR guys argue back and forth about the uh, how good this measure is. But it's called Active Share, and what Active Share is is you basically look, examine the weight in the portfolio, and you compare it to the weight in the market cap weighted portfolio. And by doing this, you can create a measure that will vary from zero to one, where zero means you are essentially the market cap weighted portfolio, i.e. your Vanguard, and one or 100%, right, means that you are completely different from the market. And so that's great, but it involves math and there is some question as to do you really just want to be different than the market? Um, the, the answer is probably no. You want to be different, but you also want to have a tilt, right? And so as opposed to um, – and, and I do recommend, you know, it's called ActiveShare.info. It's Martin Kremers has this uh, pretty cool site. Uh, recommend people to take a look at it. Um, but as opposed to just doing this mathematical number-based formula that's going to range from zero to one, we were like, hey, this would be really neat if 
we could show for any given ETF, that's what we currently have, just ETFs, U.S. ETFs, in the marketplace, what the actual underlying stocks are in the portfolio. And, and what I mean by that is um, on the x-axis and y-axis, we allow anyone to pick what you want to rank something on. So you could rank it on market cap or and book to market. And if you click on you know, SPY, the uh, S&P 500 ETF, you'll see that it's a It'll plot all of the little stocks in there, and, and the circles represent how big the uh, each individual stock is in the portfolio. And you can compare different ETFs in this tool that we built. So one could actually say, okay, well, you say you're you're a value fund. Let me compare you to the S and P 500 and see how different you really are. And, and the nice thing about that is that so many, you know, people talk about stuff on, on kind of subjectively, but when you, when you look at the visuals of this, it, it, it's actually kind of striking because there's so many funds out there, what we call the closet indexers. And here, here's kind of the big rub is that you can buy a lot of the buy and hold market cap weighted indexes for very, very low fees. S and P 500, five basis points. So 0.05%. You can get these funds, but a lot of the smart beta. Oh my God. Am I the first one that said it? You are. Son of a I'm, ex- yeah. I'm excited oh, now. Man. Uh, ah. I'm getting the most expensive I've, I've banned, mixed drink at the bar. I, I've, I've banned uh, some phrases in the office. That's one of them. Of, anyway, yeah, you can say it as many times as you want now. So, so many of these funds that get marketed um, at, at high fees. And, and they may not look like high fees, so they may only be half a percent or 0.8%, but you essentially are buying the S&P 500. And so there was actually an interesting podcast between Bill Miller and Barry Ritholtz where Bill had estimated that something like 70% of active funds were really just closet indexers that, that charge in, in the mutual fund world 1%, 2% a year. Um, what's, the, what's the domain to go find this? Is it just on the Alpha Architect website? Yeah, so on alphaarchitect.com, it's, uh, if you click on the tools button, uh, you have to register and be a financial professional, but it's free. So, um, but yeah, you, you can check it out on our website. So for investors, what's the kind of line in the sand? Is there a particular number they should be looking for when they're thinking of active share? Or is it kind of some, some rules of thumb that you may, uh, may give suggestions for? No, uh, yeah, so I'll give a couple things. So uh, maybe just let me go back to kind of what you had just mentioned previously, um, which is like how high of a fee people are actually paying, right? And so we're, we're actually building a new tool. I hope it comes out at some point. Um, and it, it's a tool that Kremers has as well. It's called Active Fee. And, and let me give you an example. So pretend you have like a smart beta fund that charges 30 basis points, right? Um, if you have a um, – let's say it has an active share of 10%, i.e. it's 90% the market, 10% active, right? If we assume that you can get the, the market for zero, let's just assume for simple math, um, that really means your active fee that you're paying there is like 30 bips divided by 10%. That's 3%. What I'd say is I think people should try to understand how much they're paying, uh, what the active fee is uh, for the funds that they're invested in. And now directly answering your question, you know, what's like a good active share number? What I'd say is uh, – and Although 
I am a fan, and I think you are too, Meb, of high active share funds. Um, although I am, I do, I would recommend that for each each advisor and investor understand that the more active a portfolio is, the more it's going to have a higher tracking error, right? So let's just say you're an advisor and you don't want to deviate from the index by more than, you know, 50 basis points. You then have two options, right? You can buy a lot of closet index smart beta funds, right? And, and you'll basically just bob around the index or you can buy you know 90 percent s&p 500 and then on that other 10 percent maybe buy some super highly active funds um, and you'd probably get to the same destination so i think it does vary from person to person but uh personally you know if i wanted to track an index i'd probably just recommend that investors pick a high percentage of passive and then on whatever part they want to deviate uh, pick pick a more active fund as kind of the satellite. I want to talk a little bit about your new ETF, and we can't really mention it online, so we'll talk about the research. But but listeners, if you uh, wanted to spell out the ticker name, it sounds like Voldemort. I don't know if that was intentional, but the the, the, the evil wizard from Harry Potter. Um, so we'll talk about the theory uh, and, and research um, behind the index. And, and something you know our, our firm has in common with you guys is appreciation for not only value and momentum, but also trend. And uh, you, you guys wrote a great white paper called The Value and Momentum Trend Philosophy. And in it, you talk about kind of just what you were just talking about. It says, our indices are designed with a unique segment of, of investors that are long-term oriented, willing to invest the time to understand our processes and have enough courage to sometimes be vastly different from the crowd. So um, let's talk a little bit about how you construct this ind- index and the philosophy behind the value momentum trend research yeah so basically well the value momentum pieces we we kind of uh spilled out earlier uh we kind of use the same philosophy on value momentum both in u.s and international And, and as i had mentioned before you know combining value momentum uh, especially when you use price momentum like what we do, tends to have very good portfolio benefits. So how we actually combine those two is um, th- there's, I would say, two recommended approaches. One is like a simple equal weighting, i.e., you know, 50% value, 50% momentum. Um, we've done that in the past. Um, I would say for anyone at home that wants to combine the two, that's uh, the simplest and probably – Good idea. Um, what we do is we actually use risk parity between the two, and all risk parity does is it kind of and these are equity all equity portfolios, so you don't get huge deviations of weights. But risk parity generally will slightly overweight on average value relative to momentum. So you know usually it's like fifty five percent value, forty five percent momentum, but that's clearly going to deviate over time. So so that's how we combine the two. And then the next aspect is something I know, Meb, you're a fan of with what you guys do as well. And we'd, we'd recommend, you know, I, I still remember reading your paper on, on trend, trend following a long time ago. But uh, trend following, what do we do is we say, hey, you know, we, we just want to be invested uh, when the trend rules are positive. So we look at 12-month, both moving average rules and time series momentum for U.S. and international indices. And... And explain what time series momentum for the readers, if not familiar. Yeah, so time series momentum is it's uh, it's actually very highly related 
to a moving average rule. All it does is it takes the total return to an index or whatever portfolio you have over the past year. Um, so let's say your portfolio is up 10%. You then subtract off the return to cash or T-bills. So let's say it's 1% now, right? And if that number is greater than zero, uh, that would indicate you should be invested. If it's negative, you would either sell or go to market neutral. And so we apply those rules on the, the S&P 500 and the EFI indices. We don't do it on the individual legs. We get that question a lot, like, why don't you apply the trend rules and timeshares momentum on value momentum? And we like to say, uh, well, one is, you know, the evidence is it doesn't really add too much. And the second thing is trend, trend following, we think, is kind of like a, it should be a broad thing where it's like big news. So we try to look at the big asset classes, i.e. U.S. stocks, which is the S&P 500, and international stocks, which is EFI, and, and kind of use those as the indicators as to whether or not stocks are trending up or down. And, and theoretically, you could potentially get some added benefit of your portfolio stocks versus the S&P um, as well. So if you're using futures or whatever it may be to hedge, you may get the additional benefit of staying in the, the equities that outperform the S&P over time. So, uh, so you put this all together, and I assume uh, this sort of portfolio is probably totally long or mostly long at this point, right? Yeah, currently it's pretty much... Well, it is. It's long only right now. <laughs> Pretty much 100%. Everything's going up this day and age. Um, all right. So you have listeners of the show and be like, damn, everything you just said makes a lot of sense. Um, and you guys have even written a book on this topic called Do-It-Yourself Financial Advisor that touches on a lot of the themes of rules-based portfolios, as well as doing it on your own, as well as potentially hiring an advisor, robo-advisor, automated advisor, which you guys also have one. What what are your thoughts on kind of as you look across the universe of robo-advisors? You know, you guys, what you're doing is quite a bit different uh, in the, in the individual account solutions, as well as the ETFs. What, what, Jack, what, what, what's kind of your experience and thoughts on the best way to implement it for people or, or, or is there a best way? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, I, for each investor, probably the most important thing is understanding their own behavior. You know, so as, as you mentioned, we have a robo advisor that essentially runs a strategy very similar to the one we outlined in our book. And a lot of times, and, you know, we even give the signals away on our website. So in theory, you know, if you read the book, you go to the website. And if you wanted to follow what we do, the trend following um, on the asset classes, you could just do it yourself. So so natural question is, what, you know, why do some people sign up? I, I even had a guy today I was talking to on the phone. And I said, oh, well, you know, you, you really could just do it yourself and you responded well i don't trust myself and so uh i think the robo is is good because in general it's a low fee um so ours is 25 bips i know maybe yours is zero i think there's a small small fee that you have to pay as well for betterment but um but pretty much it's cheap right it's cheap asset allocation that one can get as you mentioned there's different solutions so you know vanguard and other portfolios are kind of just buy and hold portfolios. Um, then there's other firms like ours and yours that kind of have different portfolios that are, I would say, more customized and, and definitely different than your standard just buy and hold portfolio. 
It'll be fun to watch it play out. You know, we've been a kind of a commentator, observer, uh, participant in this space for many years now. And, you know, the big commentary for a lot of, a lot of the critics has been that the automated solutions will really struggle during bear markets because they don't have the human element. And so it'll be kind of fun to see, you know, every bear market has a different personality. Uh, you know, 1987 crash looks different than the 2000 bear market, which looks much different from the 2007. So I, it'll be I, fun is not the right word, but it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. And, and particularly the tactical solutions like we both have versus the just buy and hold, um, et cetera, et cetera. So let's, let's get to, uh, sort of the potpourri round where we have a handful of shorter questions as well. Some, t- some tweeps have chimed in with their questions, um, with some shorter ones. You have done a significant amount of research for a, a pretty young fellow. Um, what are you excited about most looking forward? You know, what, what are you, is there any, can we pull, pull aside the curtain? Is there any, Things you're working on, any unanswered questions you have that uh, that, that are particularly uh, on the, on the forefront of your brain? Yeah, so um, I mean, things that I get excited about is just um, I, I really do love that visual active share tool we have, and we're, we're probably going to build some other cool tools to help advisors and investors pull back the curtains for funds. Um, and, and I'm just excited in general about I think. Uh, there will be in the next, you know, well, I think as millennials start to gain more assets as well as, you know, try to influence more decisions, um, you know, more data-driven decisions and, and more transparency as to, like, what one is buying. So kind of the tools on our website, I think, are, like, very beneficial to the, anyone who really wants to invest in ETFs. Um, I don't know. I think that's that's kind of exciting where you can now go in uh, and be like, oh, well, I thought that ETF was a value ETF, but I realized it's really just buying the S&P 500. So maybe I, maybe I will buy something else. So a similar question, and this is kind of tangentially related. It may be too close, but um, it says, being a quant with so much market data has been mined already, is an area that you believe still holds a final frontier uh, that, that the kind of quant can go to experience certain type of gains? Any, any thoughts there? Or, uh, is, is that secret sauce? Um, in, in public equity markets? I don't know. I just, that was the question I read. So you can interpret it. You can apply it to sports betting. I know. I know you're a sports fan. Have you ever uh, turned your lens on quantitative sports betting at all? Um, I have not. I think probably because I'm more concerned that I will become fully enthralled and do nothing else but spend all my time on that. Um, and one day I do look forward to doing that. What I'd say is anything in general where there's uh, I would say from a data standpoint, some sort of market friction or arbitrage is probably the best spot as far from a quant approach. You know, if you can just create a better way to get around that friction or arbitrage. But I'm, we'll marinate, marinate on it. We'll have you back on in a year and we can talk about it all again. Right, all right. All um, right. Speaking of rabbit holes, I mean, I, I when I was living in Lake Tahoe once, and I don't have an addictive personality, really. I remember buying... Uh, my roommates had a, a video game system and we were all varying degrees of, of kind of ski bums at the time. And one of them had bought Grand Theft Auto 
And I played for something like 12 hours straight. It was the most depressing, uh, I think, day of my life afterwards. And then I just, we ended up returning the game. I was like, I can't have this around. This is terrible. So sort of similar idea on the, uh, on the, um, uh, sports betting. All right. So let's move on. What has been the biggest, greatest investing difference of opinion between you and Wes? Hmm. Or is this like Dr. Evil and Mini-Me? Are you guys like clones of each other when you're just like always agree? Is there anything where you guys are like hacking back and forth and you're like, Wes, you're an idiot. We can't be doing this or you are a fool or vice versa. I don't know if there's a... I mean, it's kind of a loaded question because you guys tend to be pretty evidence-based, you know, yada, yada. But there's anything that you guys ever, uh, other than him tearing your ACL... Yeah. Other than that, there, there's maybe some stuff in commodities we we slightly disagree on. Oh, good. So, what what, do, what what's your opinion on commodities? A lot of people, you know, we've seen this full cycle where everyone got hot and heavy about commodities in the mid 2000s after they had that monster run, oil trading at 150 bucks, and then of course every single institution and individual uh, rushed into commodities, and now you have kind of the opposite happening where almost every uh, uh, institute. I mean, we just saw Harvard was is is getting rid of all of their commodity exposures and, and kind of moving to a more passive allocation. Anyway, what's 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 your thoughts on commodities? I'd I'd love to hear it. Yeah, I mean, well, we we kind of use it. We don't. We're not just like standard buy and hold investors. I would say in commodities, but more from like a trend follow carry um, component. You're, you're right. A lot of people are getting out of the the crisis alpha strategies, and it's kind of. It's almost like who's going to be the last one standing there still running the crisis alpha strategy. I don't know. Um, I, I think I think uh, diversified trend-followed managed futures can be beneficial to a portfolio. Uh, the question is always what is the size that you have it in the portfolio as well as, you know, do you truly understand it? So a lot of times investors don't understand that crisis alpha is great in crisis periods, but – you know, in non-crisis periods, it has a uh, low CAGR on average with a high standard deviation. So, you know, you're right. If you inv- if you started investing in some sort of uh, trend-followed commodity or uh, trend-followed futures strategy in 2010, you're probably looking at yourself saying, all right, I'm seven years into this. What's going on? But yeah, we'll, we'll, we probably we're still fans of it. Just we do have some slight disagreements within that within that realm. And the big thing too with commodities, uh, listeners, is that you have to distinguish too between really what's essentially investable commodities. So you have the spot price of gold. Whereas if you really want to invest in most of these commodities, it's through commodity futures. And a lot of the first generation commodity indices were developed um, not very intelligently. So they had no. Um, way to take advantage of the role yield of the of the futures contracts as well as some other things you mentioned like carry and trend and you've seen a lot of second generation commodity indices that I think are much better but uh but also from a from a standpoint of a trend follower I think that that makes even more sense in commodities we could do an entire show on commodities maybe we will at some point a couple more questions what is your most memorable personally what is your most memorable investment or trade and this can be either positive or negative uh do you have one that particularly stands out in your mind what i would say is uh yeah because i used to like probably everyone else 
in that listens to your show at some point, and probably you still may be, you know, just a stock picker, right? And uh, I would say the, you know, now I pretty much just am a rules-based investor that invests in portfolios that are generated by rules. But I will say that my last stock individual stock that I owned was the Titanic. It was a, you know, Premier Exhibitions, which is a stock that basically has rights to the Titanic. So, um, you know, I went, I went down with that as, as they realized they couldn't actually dig up the Titanic and make all the money that my theory and research had led me to believe that they would be able to. So there, there was another, there was another, um, thematic, equity called odyssey marine do you did you do omex do you remember this one at all this 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 was a company that was had the technology to go locate shipwrecks and so they were going around and, and unearthing and finding treasure from shipwrecks that had potentially gone down with a bunch of coins and, and they were actually really good at it and but the problem became not their business model but the problem became where they would get like detained by spain yeah so Spain would be like, whatever, that was our ship. It went down in the 16th century and we're keeping all the gold. And so they got stuck in court. I mean, I remember, um, there were some former presidential candidates that were investors. Uh, I, and I, I have I actually no idea if the, the company still exists or, or what has happened to it, but we'll, we'll look it up after the show, post a chart on the show notes and, and, uh, and look to it. But, but, but the, I mean, you can't imagine a better story for a stock, but my God, uh, I don't think I don't think the the quantitative value filters would have ever picked it up. A couple other Twitter questions, then we'll wind down. One question, you know, which is a traditional question, is is essentially paraphrases. Do most of your quantitative methodologies, you know, you guys are targeting mid and large caps. So for an investor with ability to wade in the smaller waters, does this work in the micro cap arena? So looking at below a billion dollar market cap, have you guys looked at that at all, or? Any thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, the a lot of the research, both ours and other papers, show that you know a lot of these anomalies work really well in microcaps, especially if you're going to do like the long short anomalies. And again, then the question is, well, what's like the limit to arbitrage, right? If you try to short a, you know, short a microcap stock, or even just buy a microcap stock, you know, the bid ask spreads and everything become sometimes can, can overwhelm the strategy. But yeah, uh, definitely value investing uh, works in microcaps. It's just there's clearly a limited scale to that. So one of the reasons we don't focus on that is just due to the scale issue. And here's another one. I'm, I'm going to read the question, and I, I'm not going to let you answer it because the, the question is so wonderfully um, worded. And it says, when enterprise value to EBITDA underperforms, have you ever uh, investigated why? And I, I'm going to kind of take that question. Feel free to answer it, but, but massage it a little bit and say, we didn't really get into factor valuation. So, you know, Rob and Cliff and others have chimed in a lot lately about you know, certain measures. And so you have a measure like enterprise value EBITDA that works well over time, but due to flows and the fact that Alpha Architects got 20 billion into their funds that may have pushed some of these factors to historically expensive levels or historically cheap or whatever it may be. Where do you kind of, you guys stand? Where do you stand on the, on the theory there? Is, is factor timing something you think is possible? Is it something you guys implement at all or what's, uh, what's takeaway? 
Yeah, I mean, our, our view on factor timing, and again, we're, we generally just focus on value and momentum, is that it's next to near impossible. So we're kind of more on Cliff Asnes' side, I would say, on this one, where we think it's it's very hard to do. Um, you know, one thing we looked at, I wrote a post about it. I said, hey, a great timing rule would be if, you know, valuation spreads between value and growth get really large, i.e., like the cheap firms are a lot cheaper than the expensive ones. Maybe you want to, like, switch to value. Uh, and then if they get narrow, you want to just go to momentum because everything's kind of grinding up. Um, I would say that doesn't really work that well. Um, one thing that could potentially work, and it, it slightly does, I don't know if it's statistically significant though, is just kind of using like uh, a trend. So, you know, looking at value momentum, saying, hey, value's doing better, let's switch to that. Momentum maybe doing better, let's switch to that. But we don't do that for a couple of reasons. One is we like the overall like portfolio diversification benefits of having value momentum. Uh, and the second is, you know, sometimes there's tax consequences to doing such a switch. Uh, and, you know, we generally view everything. We generally deal with taxable investors. So, you know, making a drastic portfolio move and paying taxes on it is not in the best interests of a taxable investor. And it's just too much work. Yeah. You know, sometimes simpler, simpler is better. Jack, we got to let you go. It's been a blast. Where can people find more information if they want to follow you, your writings, your funds? Where do they go? Yeah, so our website is alphaarchitect.com. Uh, my Twitter is jvogues02. And then uh, Wes and our company, where all our blogs come out, is Alpha Architect uh, on Twitter. And, yeah. I'd say uh, feel free to stop by our site. We have the free tools such as the Visual Active Share that I pointed out. Um, and it's, again, free for financial professionals to sign up. So, everyone, lesson learned buy some Voldemort. Also, pretend you're a financial professional to get access to all Jack's tools. Jack, it's been a blast. Thanks for taking the time today. I owe you happy hour when anytime you find yourself in Los Angeles. All right. Sounds good, Ben. All right, listeners, thanks for taking the time. We welcome feedback and questions. Send them to Jeff at feedback at com. As a reminder, you can always find the show notes. We'll post a bunch of the links to the articles we talked about today and other episodes at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you're enjoying it, please leave a review. We're almost to 200. Uh, so appreciate any and all things you have to say. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing. 